0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that even as things seem out of control around this world, we thank you that that is in fact not the case. You remain in control. Give us the faith to believe that even more. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word never changes. It is always relevant, it is always convicting, it is always empowering. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go forth through the the words of, of your Holy Word and churn in our hearts and make changes where changes need to be made. Make all of us more and more into the image of your Son. We thank you that this is our purpose. We thank you that we have an eternal home to look forward to. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1954, a baby girl was born to parents who were separated and living in two different parts of the United States. She spent a lot of her childhood living with her mother in inner city Milwaukee where she had to wear potato sacks because her her family could not afford clothing. When she was 12 years old, she was shipped off to live with her father in Nashville, Tennessee, where she finally felt safe, secure, and that she could start thriving. That situation only lasted a couple of short years, however, and she was called back to live in the extremely dangerous and impoverished urban situation her mother still lived in. During her time spent living with her mother, who often worked odd jobs and couldn't provide the supervision that this child needed, she endured years of sexual abuse and became pregnant at age 14. She gave birth to the child, but the child only lived for a few minutes and died in her arms. When you look at the life of a person who endured so much heartache and poverty, It's hard to see a way out of that. But following that gut-wrenching experience, this young woman once again went to live with her father. Her father provided her with structure, education, books, and rules, and she quickly blossomed into an exceptional student. She went on to graduate high school and won a full scholarship to attend the University of Tennessee. While still a sophomore in college and only 19 years old, she became the first African-American co-anchor of the Nashville CBS Evening News. Following her college graduation, she moved to Baltimore and then Chicago to lead new talk shows, eventually gaining ratings that tied with the Phil Donahue Show. In 1985, she received her own hour-length talk show and the Oprah Winfrey show was born. Today, talk show host, actress, and media mogul Oprah Winfrey is one of the most famous people in America. If someone looked at Winfrey's life when she was a child, however, they might have said, can anything good come out of this person's horrible life situation? A similar question is asked about Jesus when his hometown is brought up. The question is asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? This morning we're going to be looking at another person that Jesus calls to follow him and how his preconceptions of what the Messiah and the Messiah's background was supposed to be was completely turned on its head and how we can best relate Jesus to others. Without getting too off track, but as I just want to do a bit of review from last week, since we weren't able to get that message recorded for everyone who didn't hear that. This also gives the integral background for what leads into our passage this morning. Last week, we talked about how there were two men who were disciples of John the Baptist. One of these men, as the Apostle John tells us, is named Andrew. These two men hear what their teacher says about this Jesus of Nazareth, how he's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, and they start following him. Jesus turns around and asks, What are you seeking? To which these two men answer with another question, Where are you staying? Jesus replies to that question with the famous words, Come and see. While this was both a pretty everyday type conversation, as it was about 4 p.m., and these men were thinking about plans for the rest of the day, and wanted to spend their evening hours talking with this man from Nazareth, it was also profoundly spiritual. In essence, Jesus was also asking the question, what are you seeking in life? What are you seeking in life? A question that we all must answer. Uh, We all must look at our own lives to answer. Are we seeking after things having to do with this world, such as a well-paid, comfortable life, nice things, selfish desires, or just what we want in life? Or are we chasing after Jesus? Are we responding in the spiritual way these two men answered with the response, Well, where are you going to be, Jesus? Jesus. That's where I want to be, wherever you will be. What is a life spent following you going to look like? And when Jesus replies with, come and see, we do just that. We leave behind what we want in this life, to seek and chase after all that Jesus is. Jesus and all that he is will never disappoint, never discourage, and never Fail. It will always end in the glory of God and our fulfillment, since at, since at the end of that road is just simply God and everything that he is. Andrew goes and finds his brother, a man named Simon, and as the first recorded missionary in the Gospel of John, tells him that he had found the Messiah, Simon goes and meets Jesus, and Jesus addresses him as Simon, and all that that identity was, all the background, past, parents, lack of education, and current career that that identity meant. But more importantly, Jesus immediately renamed Simon to Stone, or Cephas, or Petros, or Peter, Jesus was declaring how much of a solid and influential figure Peter would be for Jesus' church. Yes, Jesus noted who Simon Peter had been, but at that moment, Jesus was declaring who God was going to make Peter into. It's the same with each and every one of us who take Jesus as our only hope of salvation and entrance into heaven. When God looks at us, he sees the people that he's making us into. He doesn't see who we once were. He sees who he's making us into. Strong in the Holy Spirit and bold forces for his kingdom. Lastly, we know that one of the original two men, disciples of John the Baptist, was Andrew, because John divulges that information. Who was the second unnamed man who also went with Andrew to talk with Jesus? We're not told, but most likely it was none other than the one who wrote this book, the Apostle John. It's always Andrew and Peter and then John and James who are hanging out with each other and are called to full-time discipleship later on. So it would only make sense that this other man is John. In fact, in a couple of other parts in this gospel, he also refers to a man without naming him, and those other times, it's most likely John, too, just like here. Why is this important? Because other than the prologue, or verses 1 through 18, the start and end of this book, along with everything in between, was an An account written by an eyewitness to everything that's included. John was there for everything and simply wrote it down. While we can trust that everything written in the Bible is true based on several evidences, it's extra special to have a book written by someone who saw it all take place. So in last week's passage, we have the first of at least three interactions Jesus has with Andrew, Peter, and John before he calls them, along with John's brother James, to full-time discipleship by the Sea of Galilee in Luke chapter 5. Now, in this morning's passage, we have Jesus' first interaction with and calling of two more men to follow him. These two men are named Philip and Nathaniel verses 40 so if you brought your bible with you today please turn to John chapter 1 we're going to be in verses 43 through 44 if you didn't that's okay there should be one located in the pew in front of you please also turn to John chapter 1 verses 43 through 44 or look it up on your smartphone app we read the next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him follow me now, Philip was was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Here's a... Oh, uh, you can't see this in the back. Hey, there's motivation to sit more up front next time. Okay. Here's a map of Palestine at the time of Jesus. When we read through the Gospels or we hear these stories in Sunday school, we often think that the region of Galilee was just like Judea. It, like it was just another primarily Jewish place like Judea. You can see here, Judea down here, uh, We've got Bethlehem, we've got Jerusalem here. This purple area is Judea. But look what's smack dab in the middle between Judea and Galilee. Here's Judea. Here's Galilee all the way up here, and what's smack dab in the middle of them is Samaria. That place filled with those filthy Samaritans, right? So already, geographically, there's a difference between Judea and Galilee. The places we're looking at this morning are the regions of Galilee, where Capernaum was. You can see here Capernaum right there on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and sort of near it is Bethsaida also on the edge of the Sea of Galilee but those of you who are more up front you can see this better <laughs> Capernaum is in the region of Galilee and Bethsaida is technically in the region of who who is ruled by this guy named Philip Galilee was ruled by uh, another guy now this is what I'm going to explain here why is this important? Herod the Great or the King Herod of Christmas fame, you can see here by these, this red dotted line all the way around here, this is all the border of Herod the Great's uh, kingdom there. He ruled this entire area from 37 B.C. to his death in 4 B.C. This is why you'll hear me say from time to time uh, and reference Jesus' birth year as not the year zero, but somewhere in between 4 and 5 B.C. One of the reasons it had to be then was because Jesus had to be born before when? Herod died, right? Okay in 4 BC. Now, when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided up between three of his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Just as their father was, all three rulers still had to answer to the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, also of Christmas fame. Archelaus was a horrible ruler and his reign unstable and he was eventually forcibly removed from power by Augustus and replaced by a governor over Judea, Archelaus originally ruled over Judea and Samaria here, removed from power, replaced by a governor, which is why we see Pontius Pilate as the governor over Judea calling the shots at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Meanwhile, Antipas ruled uh, the, these northern regions, especially Galilee here, including Capernaum, while yet another ruler, Philip, ruled the area of Galantius. So in Jesus' time people in Judea did not see Galilee or the region of Beth or the region of Bethsaida as the same as them government or identity wise. There were 3 different regions with 3 different governments and 3 different identities. Here, here and here. It's sort of like how we see Phillipsburg in New Jersey as having a different government and identity as Easton M.P.A. Obviously, we know in God's eyes, and when it comes to being a part of our church family, none of it matters. But in a human way of looking at things, there is a difference. Even now, there are pretty different, uh, pretty big differences in which executive orders the two state governors have issued in relation, in relation to COVID. Two different uh, orders separated by one river. This difference is how we have to see Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and the region of Bethsaida. All different places. I wonder if every year on Thanksgiving, Judea, Judea and Galilee had a rival high school football game like Peaberg and Easton. Probably not. By the time Jesus starts his ministry, This is the way things had been for about 35 years. And Jesus is, from a human perspective, from the same area as Capernaum. He's from Galilee. You see there Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus was raised, not in Judea, but Nazareth of Galilee. And what's important to our passage this morning is the fact that John says that Andrew, Simon, and Peter are from Bethsaida, which again is technically part of a whole other region over here. Whole other government and identity. This will have an influence on who these guys are, just like how the places we were raised in still have an influence on us. we got different... um, accents from different parts of the country too. Bethsaida was a location of the Old Testament city of Geshur, part of the land given to the tribe of Naphtali, which was incorporated into the kingdom of Israel by King David and later was part of the northern kingdom of Israel when the kingdom split after Solomon's rule. When the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, Geshur was one of the towns that was destroyed right along with the rest of the land of Naphtali as described in 2 Kings 15. That area, this area of Bethsaida here, this whole area lay in ruin for about 500 years until the 3rd century B.C. when the Greeks rebuilt it following Alexander the Great's conquering of it. This is my point. To everybody who nodded off just now during that historical lesson, come back. Okay, this is my point. From the rebuilding of Bethsaida, up through the births and childhoods of Andrew, Simon, Peter, and Philip was Greek in cultural identity. It was Gentile. These three men may have had Jewish families, but they lived in a thoroughly Greek and Gentile city. It's no wonder then that Philip is connected to this Greek identity. Further on in John 12, when some Gentile Greeks wanna meet Jesus, who is the person they go to first to make an introduction? Philip, we can confidently surmise then that Andrew, Simon, and Philip are childhood friends, having all grown up in Bethsaida. We can be pretty sure that Andrew and Simon's father was also a fisherman in Bethsaida, and archaeological digs have discovered that it was indeed a small fishing town. At some point, Simon gets married and moves to Capernaum, over here on this other side of the Sea of Galilee to live with and help out his in-laws and Andrew probably goes with him with both of them entering into a joint fishing venture with some new business partners John and James. What helped this decision along was the fact that Capernaum was a more prosperous fishing town and since Capernaum resided in a different territory than Bethsaida like we've talked about they would avoid a border tax between the two jurisdictions if they just stayed in Capernaum. So that's why we have uh, Simon and Andrew living in Capernaum. How does Philip fit in with all of this? Since he was probably Andrew and Simon's childhood friend, he probably went with them to Capernaum. And they may have even hel- he may have even helped them in the fishing business they owned. It's, it's no coincidence then. That as Jesus purposes to go into Capernaum, they just so happen to bump into Philip in Capernaum, right? Simon and Andrew may have even invited Jesus to come stay with them in Capernaum, which is why he purposes to go there in the first place. And then they also invited Philip over to come meet who they both believe is the Messiah. Jesus' only recorded words to Philip are what? They're two. Two words. Follow me. That's it. That's it. We don't have Philip's verbal response, but we have his physical response in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Like Andrew, Philip's immediate response is to go find someone else to share this news about Jesus with. We can confidently surmise that about half of Jesus' 12 disciples personally knew one another before Jesus called them. Andrew and Simon were brothers who were childhood friends with Philip and were business partners with John and James. Meanwhile, Philip was already friends with a man named Nathaniel, like Philip, we don't know a whole lot about Nathanael. Other than that, in the very last chapter of John, he's referred to as being from Cana and Galilee. That's not really important, except for the fact that pretty much immediately following this experience with Nathanael, you can look in your, skip ahead in your Bible. Where do we see Jesus and some of his disciples end up at a wedding at? Cana of Galilee. All right, now, if you look at the name Nathanael, something very fascinating about this the only place in the entire bible that we see this name nathaniel is in the gospel of john that's odd isn't it if he's one of jesus's disciples why is john the only book in the entire bible that this name nathaniel is found in how can that be? Since he would for sure have to be included in the list of Jesus' disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then referred to in Acts chapter 1. Nathaniel here in John is most likely the same man who is named Bartholomew in those other places. Same guy. Two different names. Bar- Bartholomew most likely was his last name, his family name. Nathaniel his first name. In fact, when we read those lists, Philip and Bartholomew are listed together. You can look it up in the the other Gospels. It's Philip and Bartholomew. They're listed right next to each other, which makes complete sense with these verses in John. While not canonical, early church tradition, written namely by Eusebius and Jerome in the 300s A.D., says that Nathanael, or Bartholomew, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, went on a missionary journey to India and left a copy of the Gospel of Matthew there. He is later credited with the conversion of the king of Armenia at the time, and then subsequently martyred by being flayed alive and beheaded. Makes you wonder how far each of us would go to share the Gospel, doesn't it? Going back to the beginning of Nathaniel or Bartholomew's faith, though, his friend Philip comes to him and tells him that he and his friends had found the one that had been prophesied about through the entire Jewish Bible. In Philip's mind, he sees all the prophecies about a messianic king, a deliverer, a suffering servant, the one who would restore Israel, and God himself as all talking about one person and the same person. That same person he explains to Nathaniel, is Jesus of Nazareth. And in human understanding, to specify it even more, he adds the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Nathaniel's response is probably one along the same lines as one many we've we've told about Jesus have had in response to what we've said to them, or maybe a response we even had at one point in our lives. Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, right. Verse, the first part of verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In connection with our opening illustration, we have Nathanael denouncing Philip's claim simply because of where Jesus came from, simply because of his hometown. Well, what was running through Nathanael's mind, which was the prevailing thought in this time period and location? After all, Nazareth was in the same region as both Cana, where Nathaniel was from, and Capernaum, where this conversation was probably taking place. So, why would Nathaniel have this strong of a prejudice against Nazareth? It was in the same exact area. First of all, there's a point as to why John included this story to begin with. As noted by one biblical scholar, as we already know, most of the people who would read John's gospel would do so well out of this described region and probably have no idea about anything having to do with Nazareth. Never even heard of it, except to know that Jesus came from there. They would have been blissfully ignorant of the overall view of Nazareth had John not included this story. So why did he do it? That was John's point. Philip goes to his friend and says, We've found the Messiah, the great figure in Jewish prophetic history who would buck any political and military oppressions and set up his kingdom over Israel, thus restoring Israel to her former former glory. Nathanael's thinking, Okay, I'm with you so far. I highly doubt it, but I'll humor you. Then Philip says, And he's from Nazareth. Cue the turntable scratch effect or the car brake screech. "A A what? replies Nathaniel. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, John had spent verses 1 through 18 describing the deity known as the word and the light through which the entire universe was created and held together by. He's described the real identity of this person, that he has no beginning and rather as a, beginning, as a member of the eternal tr- trinity of God, he also has no end. So by John then including this story about this deity, having already been connected to Jesus through John the Baptist, and is said to have originated from, in human understanding, Nazareth, what that would have been would be biting irony. That's why he includes it. Here's why. Jesus, as the Messiah, in human understanding, should have come from somewhere influential, like Jerusalem. If he was to indeed rule from there. At the very least the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. As prophesied in Micah. And as some will later argue about. The absolute last place the Messianic king should have been connected to was Nazareth. The absolute last place. Nazareth was a nobody place. It was a nothing place. To call someone a Nazarene was akin to calling somebody a hillbilly or a bumpkin. So Nathanael let his prejudice of what kind of a place Nazareth was and the only kind of people who would originate from such a place be his knee-jerk reaction. Unfortunately, this way of thinking about people has been a curse on humanity since the first sin. And notice the way that Nathaniel says it. It's pretty antagonistic, isn't it? How many times is the response that we get when we tell a family member or a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker about Jesus, an antagonistic response. But as one biblical scholar pointed out, notice what Philip's response is to his friend. Philip doesn't argue. Philip doesn't debate. Philip doesn't even respond in an equally antagonistic way. How does Philip respond? The second part of verse 46. Philip said to him, all he says to him is, come and see. That's it. That's all he responds with. Philip responds the exact same way that Jesus responds to his very first believer, Andrew. Come and see. Andrew may have even told his childhood friend about his first interaction with Jesus, including Jesus' words to him, come and see. And so Philip relayed those very same words to his critical friend. What are those words? Those words are an invitation. Come and see. See, Philip didn't respond to his friend by escalating the situation or even by simply leaving the conversation. All he said was, Come and see for yourself. All he did was invite Nathanael to see for himself. Jesus would be the one to prove to Nathanael who he was. We'll take a look at what that interaction was next week. For now, we can take a valuable lesson from this interaction between Philip and Nathanael. Philip introduced the truth of of, of who Jesus was into a conversation with his friend. His friend, as what happens more times than not, responds with criticism and antagonism. But rather than argue with his friend or give up, Philip merely invites Nathanael to see for himself what Jesus was all about. If you're having a conversation with someone and you introduce your faith in Jesus into that conversation and they respond with negativity, don't start arguing. Don't take it personally. Don't respond with passive aggressiveness or don't respond by giving up. Don't respond any of those ways. Simply respond with an invitation by saying something like, if you ever have the desire, I would love for you to come to church with me someday to see for yourself. Or... Just do me a favor and listen to this certain sermon or read this track and tell me what you think. You've given the invitation at that point. It's up to them now what they're going to do with it. If they care enough to check out this Jesus stuff for themselves, it's all God working in their heart at that point. Because ultimately, it's all up to God in any case as to what he will do. It will be all up to the Holy Spirit's leading in that person's life. That person was created by God, loved by God, given the good news by one of God's children, and it will be God who leads them to put their faith in Jesus. So, you are not a failure if it's been years and you can't lead a loved one to faith in Jesus. You are are not a failure if you've planted seeds in your conversations with them and continue to pray for them that's all you can do and then entrust the rest of the process up to God Jesus did not free you from the effects of your sin just to then enchain you with someone else's faith being all up to you We have a very real-life interaction here in our passage this morning between two very real people. Philip didn't get discouraged, and he didn't get angry. He responded with gentleness. He responded with an invitation, and he left the rest of the process up to Jesus. All he said was, come and see for yourself. All the rest of what happened from that point forward was all up to Jesus. I've referenced this before recently. But this verse offers us so much freedom, especially to those of us who have family members and loved ones that we've told about Jesus for decades, and they simply don't want to hear any more about it. In speaking with those who made up the Corinthian church, who were once pagan Gentiles, Paul says, After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Nothing, really. We are only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work God gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow the one who plants and the one who waters together with, work together with the same purpose and both will be rewarded for their own hard work any hard work we put into telling others about jesus we will be rewarded for by jesus himself Whoever God leads us to tell about salvation from sin and hell found in Jesus is God's mission for us. And as God's mission, we are merely God's servants and instruments through how others hear about the good news of the peace and hope of Jesus. As such, as Paul says, it's not important who does the planting of seeds of the good news of Jesus, nor is it important who does the nurturing of of those seeds we only do what God leads us to do nothing more and nothing less why because it's God who will make any of those seeds sprout God and only God you can't strong arm anyone into faith it will only be God who makes those seeds sprout and also it will be in God's timing As to when those seeds sprout. And it will be God who determines which situations and trials he brings into that person's life. To finally make those seeds sprout. And it will be in God's perfect plan if he makes any of those seeds sprout at all. And we have to trust him with that too. It's all up to God. It's God's plan for salvation. It's God's design for salvation. And it will be him who calls and leads who he has determined to faith in him. Rather than questioning that, we can be grateful that he opened our spiritual eyes to the blessings of faith in Jesus. Again, as we've referenced over and over again, it's all based on God's grace and God's mercy over our lives. So if there's someone in your life who you've never told about your faith in Jesus, do so now. Invite them to see for yourselves, for themselves. And if you've told someone about Jesus and it's been met with criticism, talk to them one more time, one more time, and include a simple invitation for them to see for themselves who Jesus really is. And if you've talked to someone for years and you have extended an invitation for them to check out Jesus for themselves, but they just won't budge, still plant seeds where you can, but fully entrust that person in God's hands, praying for him to move in their hearts. Don't give up like Philip didn't. And may we all be grateful for God's grace in our lives in leading us to put our faith in Jesus for our salvation. Not everyone has that. It's an unspeakably tremendous gift that God should have that amount of grace and mercy over our lives. Amen? Let us show our gratitude for that gift by living our lives to glorify him and invite one more person to come meet him and see for themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very real life, very real human passage in scripture here. A conversation between two people, a conversation between two friends. One who immediately believed in Jesus as the Messiah and all that Moses wrote and all the prophets said about who the Messiah would be. And one who responded with criticism and antagonism. Lord, we we are then thankful for the response that we seek. That simple invitation if we're discouraged about someone that is close to us or we know live by work with that we've shared Jesus with but they just won't budge Lord I pray that we would find our rest and our peace and our comfort in you and know that all we can do is plant seeds and leave the rest up to you it's your plan of salvation it's your plan of of who you will save and who you choose not to And Lord, help us to to just have that peace in you. To know you are the one who is ultimately in control and your plan will never be thwarted. We give ourselves over to you. We surrender ourselves to you in in following your mission that you've given to each and every one of us to go out into the world and to go out into each and every one of our worlds, our personal worlds, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to teach them all that you have revealed to us, to lead them to baptism, and to remind them and remind ourselves, lo, behold, you are with us always, even to the end of this age. I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.